as you turn to John chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 11 through 18, but we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 1, so we have a full picture of what's happening, and we're not coming in, plus it's Resurrection Sunday. We should probably read about Jesus actually raising, uh, rising from the dead and the uh, stone being rolled away. So please turn to John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni! which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. Father, thank you for recording these scriptures for our benefit. Thank you for giving us four different perspectives and stories telling the glory and wonder of that day, what it must have been like to go to the tomb and see it empty, what it must have been like to experience angels announcing that he is not here, he is risen, what it must have been like to hear from one of the disciples that Jesus loved, Mary Magdalene, that Jesus is alive and that she has seen him. Father, may we today see him with our hearts. May we see him with faith. May we be encouraged that he has ascended to you and is seated at your right hand this very hour. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, Forrest Gump 
is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, there's a scene in it where Forrest is back from Vietnam and he is spending time with his old lieutenant from Vietnam, Lieutenant Dan, who lost his legs and would have lost his life if Forrest hadn't saved him. And it's the holidays, it's Christmas time, and they're watching a, a Bob Hope special on TV and they're singing the end of a Christmas hymn and Bob Hope says, God bless. And it sounds very religious and very Christian. And Lieutenant Dan's in a dead stare and he just says out loud, but dead staring at the television, have you found Jesus yet, Gump? And Forrest replies, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him, sir. You see, some of the disciples, they didn't know they were supposed to be seeking and looking for Jesus. They saw the empty tomb and they put two and two together, but they, they believe, but they don't know quite what has happened. The body is missing. And instead of seeking it, instead of searching for the man they've proclaimed to love, the man that they've abandoned, and then the man that they're very quick to run and hear this news that the stone's been rolled away, they, they don't stay. They leave again, as if so quickly the, the empty tomb settles it for them, and they'll just go back to doing what they're doing. But one of the disciples, Mary, stays. She lingers, weeping, distraught over everything that has happened. She's seeking, but she doesn't know why. But her seeking is rewarded. Because if you noticed, Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved both look in the tomb, and they see the linens, but they don't see angels. Mary lingers, weeping, and she looks in the tomb, and whom does she see? angels. But then she hears a voice, and she doesn't know who it is. She turns, and maybe because she is so filled with tears that she can't see, maybe because this is still early in the morning, so it's dark out, and she's sobbing. She can't quite make out who it is. Maybe like the disciples on the Emmaus Road, the Lord has blinded her momentarily from seeing, uh, from her seeing him. But she hears a voice from a man, and he says, whom are you seeking? And we will see that Jesus asks us all the same question he asked Mary. Whom are you seeking today? Before we take a closer look at the exchange between Mary and Jesus, we have to ask and explore two questions that Jesus doesn't ask Mary. First, he didn't ask, what are you seeking? See, some of us are seeking a, a what, a thing, an experience, a result. We're seeking something to give our life meaning and purpose. And in Mary's case, what she was seeking was what was. She was seeking the past. You see that in what she asked the angels and Jesus. She says to the angels, they have taken my Lord and I do not know where they laid him. And then to Jesus, when she thinks he's the gardener. She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She understands that the tomb is empty, but she is seeking the body of Jesus as it was. She's still looking for a physical body that would have been dead and cold. 
And we see her looking for what was in her response to Jesus calling her name. She cries out, Rabboni, which is Aramaic for my teacher. Now, I always thought this was a very completely respectable and wise response from Mary. But many commentators point out that it's respectful, but it shows that she's missing something. She's missing what is happening at that moment in front of her. She sees Jesus and recognizes him, but she still holds on to what was. And so she calls him just teacher, which is probably what she had called him for years following. The man that she had spent so much time with, the man that she loved, who she heard teach, who she saw perform wondrous miracles, she doesn't recognize who he is now. If she did, she might call him something a bit more higher and greater than simply my teacher. Maybe she would have called him my Lord, my Savior. Maybe like Peter, she would have said, Son of God, Messiah. She's holding on to what he was, a teacher. And finally, we see her holding on to what was by literally seeing her cling to Jesus. And we know this from his rebuke, which sounds really harsh at first. Do not cling to me, he says to her. If you know the other resurrection accounts, this might seem a bit odd. Because in Matthew's account, Jesus actually invites the women to come and and hold his feet. And a little bit later in the evening of this very day, uh, he will appear to the disciples. And then a week later, he will tell Thomas, come touch my body if that is what you need to have faith. Come and touch the wounds that I endured and experienced for you. So is this a, a contradiction between the gospel accounts? Well, no. It's a sign that Mary was seeking the presence of Jesus, but as it was, not as it is now. Upon seeing her Lord, she throws herself at his feet, overcome with the emotions and begins to holding on for him for almost dear life. I mean, you could picture somebody that you thought dead and now is alive before you. Someone that you loved, you would have clung on to them. There'd be sobbing, there'd be snot, there'd be weeping. And it borders, some commentators, on possibly embarrassing. It borders on maybe Jesus being aware that they're just alone in a garden and there's still ancient moors of men and women being alone. But there's something else probably of what he's telling her not to cling on to. She's clinging on to the past. What was suitable before is no longer suitable. He's worried she may actually not let him go, and he has a mission for her. He has an assignment for her to carry out, and she is literally, by clinging on to the past, preventing the proclamation of the message. The next question that he does not ask her is, he doesn't ask why you're seeking. She's asked twice, why are you weeping? And and it's good that she weeps, but she's also gently reproved in this. Her tears capture many Christians' experience. She weeps as one who has abandoned hope. She's afraid that she has missed the body of the Lord, that he's been taken away, and she's weeping, but Jesus is so close. He's right there, and she's so caught up with her emotions and her fears and her anxieties and her weeping that she's going to miss the fact that he is there calling her, asking her, engaging her. And 
This is true of us at so many times. We jump to the worst possible conclusions. We have so much fears and anxieties about tomorrow that we forget our Savior told us today's got enough trouble for itself. Don't worry about what comes tomorrow. The angels and Jesus know why she is seeking, but they don't know why she is weeping. She's weeping because she doesn't fully understand. She's weeping because she doesn't know that her Savior is right there. She's weeping over her circumstances and so cannot recognize God's quick provision to be next to her. So this leads us then, we've gotten those out of the way, to the encounter, to the question that Jesus asks Mary, that he asks every single one of you, and he especially asks today, whom are you seeking? We must seek the one who is ascending. Look at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. A few minutes ago, we talked about Jesus rebuking Mary, saying, Don't cling to me. And so we turn our attention to why he insists on this. He doesn't say, do not cling to me because I'm resurrected and brand new. No, he says, do not cling to me for I am ascending to my father. And he tells her to instruct his brothers that he's ascending. The process has begun and it cannot be prevented by acts of affection, however well intended. There is a message to proclaim. And the message that Mary's tasked with giving is, Jesus isn't staying around. He is on the move. The resurrection is his triumph over death and the grave, but his mission is not complete until he ascends to the Father. Why? Well, as we looked at when we were in our Ephesians study, and as we looked a little bit at last week, because once he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, the Father will place all things in subjection under his feet. Further, Jesus told the disciples in John 16 that it is for their benefit that he goes away so that he can send the helper to them, the Holy Spirit, which is why when we say the Nicene Creed today, the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. Jesus spends more time right here discussing the ascension than he does his own resurrection. John Calvin said of this passage, Christ forbids the apostles to fix their whole attention on his resurrection, viewed simply in itself. But he exhorts them to proceed further until they come to the spiritual kingdom, the heavenly glory, and God himself. It reminds me in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, when new Narnia is revealed, and Aslan is calling all the Narnians' attention to himself and to this new land that he's giving them. And he cries out, he roars out that the resurrected Aslan says, further up and further in. And so Jesus is drawing our attention further up and further into the new reality of his spiritual kingdom. You know, there's a saying that I grew up hearing that sometimes people can be so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Are you familiar with that? I feel like we've probably gone a little bit too far with that. And now we can be so earthly-minded, we're going to be of no heavenly good. 
We get too caught up with what is happening here and now when we're forgetting that Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The battles that we face are spiritual battles. The forces against us. We looked at when Jesus told Peter that Satan's desire was for him last week. Those are spiritual forces at us. We should be ever having our hearts and our minds and our thoughts stirred to heaven, to where Christ is seated. And we couldn't have that if he had not ascended. He is on his way, he tells his disciples. But there's another part to this message that needs to be pulled out a bit from the text. And it will lead into the next point, but it's when Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. He seems to have a heart of consolation for his disciples, of comfort for them. He doesn't want them to worry at all, but comforts them by saying, all that God is to me, he is to you. Jesus was the Son of God, naturally, spiritually, powerfully. We are not. We are made sons and daughters of God by the virtue of adoption, by union with Christ, because of what he has done for us. And what Jesus says here is what he is by nature, we are by adoption. Now, I have never met a parent who has adopted children and natural children that distinguishes between the two. They are always just my children. I can think of nothing more comforting than that he ascended to his father and he brings up all the father's adopted children to them, each one of us before the throne of grace so that he can plead on our behalf daily and save us to the uttermost. But Jesus' exchange with Mary shows us that we must also seek the one who restores. Jesus gives Mary a message and says, Go to my brothers. Now, his brothers are not his biological brothers. We, we know that he has them, but they're, they're not who he's talking about. Remember, in Jesus' earthly ministry, his family, his brothers, his sisters, his mothers are the ones who do his father's will. He's talking about his disciples, the men that he has knit himself to over the course of his earthly ministry. So he says to Mary, go to my brothers. The last time he saw these brothers, he saw their backs as they ran away from him and abandoned him at his hour of need. And yet such is his grace and compassion that his first thoughts after the resurrection is for the abandoners and wanderers. His words are not condemning. They're not angry. They're comforting, encouraging, forgiving, and restoring. They ran, and he restores. In fact, they were on his mind so quickly that some think that Jesus is here fulfilling Psalm 22. Now, if you remember Psalm 22, it's the last words that Jesus says on the cross. He cries out the very first verse of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then here, when he says, Go declare to my brothers this message, Mary, some see him fulfilling the second part of Psalm 22, where it says in verse 22, Psalm 22, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. 
Because in verse 24, what we see is that the one who cries out and experiences the forsakenness of God, the afflicted one, will be the vindicated one. Because in verse 24 of Psalm 22, he says, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. Jesus' last words on the cross are some of the taken from the same psalm as his first words to his disciples. It is a marvel of the continuity between Jesus' death and his resurrection that this is still on his mind. And saints, if it's true for them that he restores them, it is true for you who believe in him. When you run, he is waiting to restore you. Now, many of you know I've got young kids still, and so I, I'm very familiar with children's books. And there's a classic one that maybe you're familiar with. It's Margaret Wise Brown's Runaway Bunny. It's the story of a little bunny who decides he's going to run away from his bunny mom. And no matter how far he runs, no matter how different he becomes, his mommy is either always chasing after him or sets it up that baby bunny runs to her. It's a beautiful heartwarming story, but a, a songwriter that I really like named Jess Ray was so taken with this story that she thought it described Jesus's pursuit of us. No matter how far we run, Jesus is always running after us or making it so that we run to him. So she wrote a song based on Runaway Bunny, and, and here's just a bit of the lyrics for you. I'm not going to sing. I have seen this all before, it is all too familiar, but you will never see the bottom of my storehouses of love. So as you use the night to make your flight, no choice that you will make or path you take will change my mind. Even if one day you decide you will find somewhere else to hide, I will walk your way and call your name and wait for your reply. Even if you make up in your mind you don't want to be by my side, I will leave behind 99, oh, that you be mine. I'm going to leave behind 99, oh, that you be mine. The resurrected and ascending God gathers the wanderers, the people that abandoned him, that gave up on him, and he restores them. He comes to them with grace and mercy. You cannot run, outrun the mercy of God. But it's not just the brothers he restores. This whole scene is about a, a woman, an extremely important woman in Scripture. He restores Mary. Notice in verse 11 and verse 16, she's simply called Mary, which is a very popular Jewish name. I mean, there's Marys everywhere in the ancient times around Jesus. But then in verse 18, we're given her full name again, because we had it at the very beginning of the story in verse 1, but in verse 18, we're given it again, Mary Magdalene. Why put the emphasis right before she's sent out? Why now attach the, her full identity? I mean, she could have gotten mixed up with any one of the Marys that were following Jesus. Why does he make clear, and why does John record clearly that it was Mary Magdalene who is tasked with sending out, proclaiming he is risen? Well, it's because Mary Magdalene's a woman with a past. In Luke 8, verse 2, and in Mark 16, 9, we're told that Mary Magdalene 
had been possessed by seven demons. She met Jesus, who exorcised them out of her, and after that, she became one of the women who followed him along with the disciples. People knew her. People knew who she used to be. They would have known about her embarrassing past. I mean, demonic possession carried a host of bad connotations. Maybe she was immoral. Maybe she was wicked. Maybe she was being punished for some sin. Maybe she was just crazy. People would have talked about Mary while she was possessed. They certainly would have talked about her once she was no longer possessed and had been set free by Jesus. And this, this woman with the checkered past is the one that Jesus chooses to announce the good news that he's raised from the dead. The woman he reached down into hell to free so that he could raise her up above heaven is how Calvin describes her. See, when you follow Jesus, when he is the one whom you are seeking, who the one you are seeking to restore you, your future is what defines you, not your past. Every single one of us here has a past. Things that we have done that we're ashamed of, things that we are done that we are reminded of. Anytime, saint, that you're reminded of your past, it is Satan, not your Savior. Your Savior sees no past. He sees only where he has gone to be with the Father ascended in glory. And he takes people like Mary Magdalene, like Peter who betrays him, and out of weak, broken vessels, he makes vessels of honor to carry the good news that he is risen. He restores Mary, and he gives her an honor that he gives to no other disciple, male or female. In doing so, he actually does something even more cosmic he restores all women. Uh, a German reformer that I was not familiar with until I was studying for the sermon named John Brentius made this remark. What honor this passage puts on women. Sin came into the world by Eve, a woman. Yet God in mercy ordered things so that of a woman Christ was born. To a woman Christ first appeared after he rose from the dead, and a woman was the first to carry the news of his resurrection. So we see that Mary and all women are restored from the fall to honor, from shame to honor. He does not stop there, though. It is not enough that she is the first person to see the risen Lord. She'll be the first person commissioned to announce the good news that Jesus is alive. We must seek the one who commissions us. Jesus gave Mary a task. We see here the necessity laid upon all of us to tell others the good news of the gospel. The very first command Jesus gives resurrected is a command for one disciple to tell the other disciples about the good news. J.C. Ryle, a famous Anglican bishop, said that the Greek word here for announce even sounds in the Greek like her tongue is loose. It's as if she went open-mouthed, telling every disciple that she met along the way, hardly stopping till she got to Jerusalem, just declaring to the whole city, he's risen, he's alive, I've seen him. And more importantly than receiving the message is that she obeys without hesitation. Like Mary, the mother of Jesus, who received the news that she would bear the Son of God and responded, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So we see Mary Magdalene immediately go off to announce, I have seen the Lord. We don't need to wait to be set apart for ministry, to announce 
the gospel. This passage isn't about church governance or who's allowed to preach or administer the sacraments. This is the commission for disciples to be ready at all times to give an account for the hope that is found within you. Mary went from weeping without hope to proclaiming with all the hope in the world that Christ is risen. All of us have that commission. Whether you're 5, 55, 75, 85, when you encounter the world weeping without hope, you have a commission from your Savior to proclaim hope. And let it rip. Let your tongue be loosened, proclaiming. Let it just flow out of you. Let me tell you about the one who was dead and is now alive, who has gone ahead to the Father and who will come again. I'm going to conclude the sermon by drawing your attention to two verses that end this chapter. In verse 30, John writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's an old and popular phrase of skeptics, seeing is believing. And we might think it was, it's easy for the disciples to believe in the resurrection. Jesus appeared to them multiple times for 40 days, we're told. And Jesus seems to agree with that thinking, that it may be easier for disciples then to believe because they got to see him than the saints that will come when he's gone. Which is why, from our assurance of pardon today, we heard Jesus' words to Thomas where he said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This is Jesus speaking to you today. How will you believe in him whom you seek? Turn to the record of salvation. This is the book that the helper was sent to help the apostles write. The reason we have the scriptures is because Jesus ascended and then sent the Holy Spirit to inspire Luke and John and Mark and Peter and all the other witnesses of the New Testament to proclaim the work of Christ in the world and the church after he had been ascended. This is the book that tells us where we may find life and joy and salvation. It is the book where we discover whom we have been seeking. It is the book where we are found. Because the most wonderful part of this gospel is not that we are seeking to find Jesus, but that Jesus is seeking to find us. He asked Mary, whom are you seeking? But Jesus saw Mary first because he was seeking her. Saints, your Savior draws close to you, seeking you, even when you are not seeking him. Let's pray. Most gracious Lord, thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. His message to us was that he has come to seek and save the lost, and that he doesn't lose the ones he saves, that he grips onto them, that he is the good shepherd, and that his sheep know his voice. Lord, may we know his voice. May we have the comfort that he knows us, and that he has uttered our names on his lips before you in your throne. We ask that you would be with us. Give us your Holy Spirit. May you stir us throughout this day to have joy and have it abundantly 
that Jesus Christ is alive and death itself is undone. Amen. Please stand as we sing our concluding hymn, hymn 277, Christ the Lord is risen today.